program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Have you lost a loved one recently? Do you find it hard to move on with your life? There are lots of questions and a quest for a solution. Where do you start? Welcome to From Morning to Morning with your host, Rabbi Mel Glazer. Rabbi Mel and his guests are here to guide you through the different stages of grief and help you heal from your loss. You'll come away with a much better understanding of how you can move forward. Now, here's Rabbi Mel. Well, hello, everybody. It's... um. I would say it's good to see you again, but I can't see you. You can't see me, but you can hear me, so it's good to be together. It's always good to be together. That's what—that's the secret to healing. It's good to be together. You can't heal by yourself. You can only heal in a group with support from people that you love. I want to start with a... Um, uh, it's it's a little humorous story, actually. Uh, in 2007, I wrote two books. One was a pamphlet uh, called When Death Visits a Jewish Home, 99 Tips for Mourners. And it was directly, directed directly at the Jewish community. And it told uh, Jews what to do exactly from the moment of death to a year anniversary. And I was really proud of that. If you'd like a copy, first five people that send me an email, and you've got my email on the announcement of the program on the e-card that you got today, first five people that send me an email, I will be happy to make you a recipient, I'll give you a gift. I'm looking for some uh, religious kind of types to help me make a series out of this. I'd love to um, publish another pamphlet called When Death Visits a Catholic Home, When Death Visits a Baptist Home, When Death Visits a Buddhist Home. So if you're interested in uh, the series, which I think is, is plenty needed. So send me an email, and uh, we'll talk. We'll talk. So the other book that I published in 2007 was my, my really first main book called And God Created Hope. So I thought it was a pretty cute title. You know, on the first day, God created the world. And on the second day, God created this. And on the third day, God created that. And on the sixth day, God created human beings. And on the seventh day, God rested and God created the Shabbat. So I thought that the title, And God Created Hope, was sort of a play on words and would make it a bestseller. Well, guess what? (laughs) It wasn't quite 
that way. I'm waiting for Oprah's producer to call me. I'm sure she's going to get to it eventually. But one of the things that I say in that book, and God Created Hope, is that you can learn about grief and healing in the Bible, through the Bible. And so I have different chapters, and at that time I thought there were traditionally seven or eight stages to more to grief and healing. Now I think there's just three. I've condensed them down. But then, you know, Kubler-Ross said there were five stages, and I expand a little bit. Each chapter was about one of those stages, and I illustrated that stage with a biblical story that we all learn in Sunday school that came from what some people call the Old Testament, what we Jews call the Torah. I'm going to give you an example of that tonight. Uh, One of these days I want to talk about Jonah, because Jonah, or Job, I'm sorry, I want to talk about Jonah too, trying to escape from fear. But Job is the answer to the question why bad things happen to good people. Because plenty of bad things happen to Job, I have an answer. Of course, the most famous answer was written by Rabbi Harold Kushner, who just published his latest book called The Nine Most Important Things I Learned About Life. Everybody should read it. Everybody should read it. He is a master. Doesn't matter whether you're Jewish or not or nothing or everything. You got to read this book. Anyway, Rabbi Kushner wrote the book a long time ago called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And every year at rabbinical conventions, somebody would say, why didn't you entitle your book why bad things happen to good people. And he said, because if I had entitled my book, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People, the, ty- the book would only be three words long. What does that mean? He said, bad things happen to good people, quote, because they do, unquote. So you see, I follow in his footsteps, and he's my teacher, and I'm his student. Uh, Bad things happen sometimes just because they happen. So I want to give you an example of some of the things that I was talking about last week, about shock and anger and fear. And I want to illustrate those emotions with the story of the death of Aaron's sons, Nadav and Avihu. Now, Aaron, as most of you remember from Sunday school, was Moses' brother. And when God came to Moses and said, you know, you're my guy. I want you to free the Israelites from slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt. Moses said, not me, mister. I'm not going to do it. You go find somebody else. Well, you don't talk that way to God. God won't listen to you. And God didn't listen to Moses, and and God said, no, you're the guy, you're the leader. 
I want you to do it. And one of the things Moses said was, but I'm not a good speaker. So how will Pharaoh listen to me and how will the Israelites listen to me? What's interesting that from the book of uh, Exodus, when the story began to the book of Deuteronomy, the end of the Torah, Moses became a great, great speaker. But Moses' uh, brother Aaron was his spokesman. And Moses didn't talk a lot until, unless God commanded him to. Most of the words that the Israelites heard came from Aaron. So I want to talk about Aaron as an example of shock and anger. You remember the story on the very day that Moses' brother Aaron was made a high priest, God killed Aaron's two sons, Nadav and Avihu, because they took it upon themselves to make an offering of burnt incense, even though God had not commanded an offering from them. They went beyond the law. Some commentators say they were so excited that their father was being made the high priest that they got carried away. We'll never know because the Torah doesn't say why. But when his two sons were so suddenly killed by God, Aaron's first reaction was silence, shock, and numbness. He was in shock, typical as we've spoken about. As we've spoken about, shock is the first response to a sudden unexpected death. Even an expected death causes loved ones and others to feel shock and to feel numb. It's a perfectly natural reaction. The issues we want to pay attention to are the results of this shock. How long it lasts, how we function while we're in emotional shock, how we get through it, and its aftermath. And yes, it eventually goes away, but you got to work it. It's tough. So Aaron was also silent when God killed his sons because he understood, at least he thought he did, why they had died. It was a natural consequence of their actions. Regardless of whether that consequence, death, was too severe a punishment or not. In his head, in Aaron's head, he was quiet. But in his heart, he was in shock. It's one thing to consider that God could kill for this kind of seemingly small offense. And it's quite another for it to happen to your own sons. I can't even imagine the death of one child, but the death of two children on the same day at the same time, and that they were killed by God, I cannot imagine how Aaron must have felt. So he was silent. Perhaps Aaron was also silent because he didn't want to challenge God and be the next to die. His son's deaths also might be one of Aaron's lessons 
about what his role as high priest meant. How important it was to follow God's rules. And how Aaron would need to relay this to the other Israelites. He was the high priest. He was the role model. He took care of all the ritual in the temple. He was it. And so he realized that if he didn't behave himself, same thing that happened to his sons might happen to him. Another lesson is that the high priest's kids are not excused from God's rules. Aaron got that lesson loud and clear, and it contributed to his shock. Sometimes leaders think that their kids, you know, get extra privileges, uh, particularly political leaders. And, And often we will read in the paper and online about how the children of political leaders or sports figures or musical stars uh, do bad things and their behavior is embarrassing to their parents. Well, I think Aaron learned the lesson that it was not only he who had to act in a special way, but is also his kids. But Aaron was also human and his sons were just killed, even though it was by God. In the book of Leviticus, the 10th chapter, the third verse, it says, and Aaron held his peace. In Hebrew, the word vayidom is used. It even sounds like one of those deep words, vayidom. It is what it sounds like. And it means silent as well as numb and dumbfounded. When we're in shock like Aaron, we're also shocked by the death circumstances and implications. After his sons died, what did Aaron do? Well, even though he was in shock, he kept functioning, he kept working. He was a high priest after all, and he had very special responsibilities. So he never said a word about his son's death. That was raw, absolutely. And so we can learn from Aaron about what not to do. Don't stop talking about loved ones who have died. Although it was a good thing that Aaron continued fully with his life and his work, It was not such a good thing that he never mentioned his dead sons again. No one can heal when they do this. Talking about those who've died is integral to the grief recovery process. To stay silent is like pretending the deceased never even lived, never had an impact on your life. What do you do, ignore them? Pretend they were never born? We talked about that last week. So if somebody were to ask Aaron, how many kids do you have? Well, he had four sons. So what's the right answer? I have four sons or I have two sons. I don't know. I don't know. But not talking about their death is a form of denial and only serves to clog up the emotional drain. 
talking about those who have died as a healthy venting, a healthy flow through the emotional drain. So when you're in shock, it helps to be with people. It's like a reality check. They're in shock too. You can be compassionate with each other. And by talking to each other, the death begins to sink in. And the shock begins to slowly wear off. While he was in shock, we can safely assume that Aaron was also upset about the end of the hopes, dreams, and expectations he had for his sons, about the end of their futures. Aaron's shock had to be spiced with a good deal of anger, anger at God, anger at his sons, even perhaps anger at himself. How could I raise them to do that, he might have thought. He would have been angry at God for killing them, angry at his sons because they would have still been alive if they hadn't made that offering, and angry with himself because he wondered if he could have done something to prevent their deaths. When we're in shock, we react the same way, with anger, frustration, and plenty of if-onlys. If only I had done this. If only I had done that. In grief, shock and anger always go hand in hand. Aaron never let his anger out. We can learn from that too. Learn what not to do. Don't keep your anger in. Let it out in a safe, appropriate, private setting among those who understand you and will comfort you. In Aaron's story, perhaps the most shocking thing is that despite everything, Aaron continued to be the high priest and he didn't walk away from God. Wouldn't you? I might have sure thought about that. I don't want to work for a guy like that. I want to work for somebody else. I don't want to work for a boss. Who's going to kill my kids? We'll talk some more after the break. Be right back. Find out what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. How do you define work? Is it that mundane Monday through Friday place that seems to be sucking a third of your life out of you? Or have you made it a place of personal fulfillment, achievement, and purpose? 
If you are looking to make your work life the latter, tune in to Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. There are all kinds of inspiring work-life stories told by people who have made work something to look forward to every day. Working on Purpose can be heard every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Empowerment. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. You are listening to From Morning to Morning. To find out more about our program, visit GriefOK.com. Again, that's GriefOK.com. Now, back to From Morning to Morning. Okay, we're back. I called my website GriefOK. It's been up for 20 years in various stages because most people don't know what to do about grief. And I wanted people to know that it was okay to grieve. So let's go back to Aaron. So his sons were killed by God. They didn't just die in an automobile accident. They were killed by God, and he did not walk. He, Aaron, didn't walk away from God. He kept working for him. So you could say, wow, how strong he must have been. What fortitude he must have had. Does this speak also to Aaron's capacity for forgiveness? Did he forgive his sons? Did he forgive God? Did he forgive himself? Or does it mean that Aaron feared God so much that he just silently went along with him? Perhaps Aaron understood God's actions and considers his sons a sacrifice. Now, the book of Leviticus never sheds any light on these questions. Because Aaron's sons, their death and his reactions are never mentioned again. After that one sentence, Vayidom Aharon, and Aaron held his peace. Most people mistakenly think that once you grieve someone, you're done. But that's not true. At any point during the healing or recovery process, you can feel like you're starting all over again, mourning from scratch. I want to go back to something that I talked about before, and that is that shock is a terrible thing when somebody dies, and it's our first reaction. But there are benefits to shock. Immediately after receiving the bad news, shock can actually be good for you. Because it protects you like a Band-Aid from the initial intensity and reality of losing someone. Shock fortifies you and allows you to deal with the loss gradually as the shock wears off. Yes, it's true. The shock temporarily paralyzes you in a way and that you can protect and that can protect you while you let the reality sink in and begin the early stages of healing at your own pace. I think I've told you that when my mother died, you know, all I wanted to do was come back from the cemetery, get in bed, cover up under my blanket, never come out again. That's how sad I was, and that's how upset I was and shocked. I knew she was going to die from lung cancer, but still, 
Yesterday she was here and today she wasn't. So I just wanted to leave the earth and, and be with her. And I'm sure that part of Aaron wanted to leave the earth and be with his sons. The numbness you feel is like the Novocaine the dentist gives you. So you won't feel him drilling into your tooth. By the time the numbness wears off, the healing has begun and you're beyond the sharpest initial pain. The shock and numbness has protected you from feeling as acutely as you would have felt had you not been numbed by shock. As the numbness wears off, you've been gradually acclimating to the pain. So how do you get through the initial shock and anger? There's not much you can say to people that will comfort them immediately after someone dies. They're too much in shock for anything to help. In fact, the Talmud, which is a Jewish encyclopedia written between the years 200 and 500 of this era, the Talmud says that you shouldn't say anything to people when their dead are lying before them. What should you do? We're going to spend a lot of time on this later on in another session. You just hug them and comfort them. Anything else you may say except I'm sorry or what do you need is not going to help and can be damaging. So what do you do when you get angry at God? Well, I'll tell you a story. Recently, I received a phone call from a man whose father had just died. His mother had died not long before that after battling cancer for several years. Before she died, she'd stopped coming to the synagogue because she was angry at God. She felt that God had deserted her and had stopped taking care of her. So she was going to stop visiting him at the synagogue. I'll show him, she said. He doesn't take care of me. I'm not going to pray to him anymore. So her son and I had a long talk about all this. When I suggested to him that his mother's anger at God had been a perfectly normal reaction, he was surprised. He thought that most people maintain their faith in God no matter what. I told him that I believe that is not the case. I believe that most of us have a fairly fluid faith. When things are good, we believe in God. And when things are not so good, we do not. We become angry at God when we're afraid we'll lose or have lost loved ones. We become angry at God when we fear for our own lives. Why is that? Because when we were infants, everyone took care of us. Our parents, our older siblings, our other family members, and our doctors. We didn't have to make any decisions, and our lives were in the capable hands of others. When we grew up, however, we realized that we had to take on the responsibility for our lives and make our own decisions. No longer could we depend on others to keep us safe. Now that was our job. I guess that's the difference between being a little kid and a grown-up adult.
But when illness or impending death enters our lives, we tend to want to return to what life was like in childhood. We want to again rely on others to take care of us, make us well, return us to life. When our doctors and caregivers in whom we place so much hope do help us, we feel safe again. But we, when we can't fix our illnesses, we become angry. We know that they're only mortal human beings who are doing the best they can. And we know that the human body has its own agenda, which no one can change. Still, we are angry. Sometimes our anger is directed at God, whom we'd like to believe and what we were taught as kids can do anything, even cure incurable diseases. Our heads know the truth, but our hearts don't, and they break when pain overwhelms us. Our anger is normal, but it isn't pure anger. It's anger that's filled with fear. When we have to change the way we've lived for so many years, when we become homebound or need bedpans and walkers, when we have to depend on dialysis and adult diapers, when we spend too much time in the hospital and we begin to realize that our lives are coming to an end, we are scared. That fear comes out as anger. The anger we feel is really the flip side of the fear that we no longer have a life to enjoy and that death is coming closer with each passing day. I think that most of us only let God into our lives when we're afraid. God is the force in the universe that gives us hope, that allows us to move forward when we feel like giving up. No matter how many days, weeks, or months we have left to live, and nobody knows, but we have the ability to make decisions about how we're going to live and what we want to happen before we die. The ability to look beyond pain is one of the precious gifts God gives to us. Even when we're filled with fear, or perhaps especially when we're filled with fear, God walks with us, especially just as he did when we were infants in our parents' arms. And once again, as in the beginning, God takes care of us. I believe God will be with us always. All we have to do is believe. Now, I said last week that shock either frees you or freezes you. When you've lost someone, the shock, that's the only two reactions. Freezes you or frees you. Initially, shock freezes every griever. Some are afraid they'll stay frozen. Most, though not all, will thaw out and become free. During shock's initial frozen stage, you begin to discover what you're really made of. You call upon your inner strength, resilience, and coping skills in order to move from frozen to free. Some people are stronger more resilient, 
and they cope better than others. When someone is physically freezing, we put a blanket on them. The emotional equivalent of a blanket is community. And of course, it's true, each of us has a different healing style. After a loss, some of us need to be alone for a while. We need time alone to begin adjusting. We heal better when we have some time away from others. Others of us want to get back to work. We want to be with people once again because being with people helps. You never know. You could be the person, the kind of person who heals better with more time alone. You may look frozen on the outside, but you're actually free on the inside. Or you could be out there working, being a mom or a dad, but you're still frozen on the inside. Nobody knows. The griever can look free on the outside, but is actually frozen on the inside. And the reverse is true. The griever looks frozen on the outside, but can actually be free on the inside. Some people who try to console you end up just slowing down your healing. They don't mean to do that. They just don't have the knack for consolation. They think they should say something, and it's often the wrong thing. When you've lost a loved one, the last thing you want to hear is, well, it's probably for the best. And even the most faithful among us aren't necessarily consoled by the words, she's with God now, so everything's going to be okay. With all due respect to God, mourners would really rather have their loved ones alive and with them. When you're grieving, you just want consolation and comfort, not necessarily advice and opinions. But most people don't know how to console or comfort. They mistakenly believe that advice and opinion is synonymous with consolation and comfort. But we know, we grievers, it's not. Mourners need to be heard. When you're mourning, talking, and telling your stories helps you go from frozen to free. You're not necessarily looking for those listening say anything useful or wise, but people find it hard to just sit there and say nothing. So they respond, and those responses can often be useless or upsetting because they don't talk to your heart. They talk to your head. Nothing's wrong with your head. Somebody died. Your heart is broken. Your head is just fine. So when someone dies, I suggest you seek out only those people who can truly comfort you with their actions or words. Thinking back to the biblical story of Aaron, I'd wondered whether he'd been frozen or freed. Did Aaron's shock ever wear off? Did he heal? I figured he probably stayed frozen. So I asked some of my fellow rabbis what they thought. 
And Rabbi Peretz Rodman, a friend of mine, who's a writer and an educator in Jerusalem, had a most profound answer. He said, I'll tell you what I think. I don't know, he wrote me. And isn't there a useful message in that too? Often we cannot know whether or to what extent the people we are dealing with, certainly in casual or business contexts, maybe even at home, have healed after grief. That means that we have to be very careful in what we say, conscious of how it might reawaken their pain. So shock can freeze you and shock can free you. And we all know people who stayed frozen. We know that. I told you the story about the boy who was hit by a car last week. His mother stayed frozen. She didn't know what else to do. She was so filled with guilt. She felt so guilty for saying, it's okay, you can cross the street now. And then he died. He was hit by a car. Well, you don't think she spent the rest of her life feeling guilty and, and being angry with herself? But on the other hand, I also know a lot of people who are not frozen anymore. They're free. Not long ago, I spoke with a teenage girl five years ago found her mother's body after the woman had committed suicide. The mother had been a single parent who had been depressed for many years, and the girl had played mother to her. But this teenager was strong and resilient, and the shock and grief of the situation she saw as a springboard to a better life. She's now in college. She lives on her own. She works. She makes good money to support herself. She has a brother, but she's no longer in touch with him because he's a drug addict who won't accept any help. So she's on her own. She's happy, healthy, and independent because she's finally out from under the responsibility and weight of a dysfunctional family. The woman who'd had a happy life was frozen by the shock of losing her son. The teenage girl who'd had a, different, a difficult childhood was freed by the shock of losing her mother. Perhaps the woman with the picture-perfect life had never gone through anything that triggered the development of any meaningful coping skills. Well, who knows? I felt so bad for her, but I felt great about the teenage girl who became a young woman, strong, resilient, and healthy once again. We'll be right back after the break. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. Want more positivity in your life? 
Are you ready to get healthy, happy, and energized? Join the Stella Donna Goddess Gals, Cynthia Bryan, and Heather Brittany for a power hour of stimulating, supportive conversation on Star Style. Be the star you are. A lineup of best-selling authors, celebrities, and experts join the effervescent mother-daughter dynamic duo in this upbeat, positive, life-changing talk radio playground. Star Style. Be the star you are. Wednesdays, 4 to 5 p.m. Pacific, 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Lend us your ears. It's power time. Do you or somebody you love have a struggle with abuse? You don't need to be a slave to your abuse anymore. Listen for Beyond Abuse, Beyond Therapy, Beyond Anything with Dr. Lisa Cooney. Dr. Lisa overcame struggles in her own life. Two decades of sexual, emotional, and physical abuse nearly took their toll. In her 20s, she turned her life around and set upon a path to help others. She can help you find the key to take control of your life, too. Listen every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. You are listening to From Morning to Morning. To find out more about our program, visit GriefOK.com. Again, that's GriefOK.com. Now, back to From Morning to Morning. Hi there, we're back. So I want to change the subject a little bit. And I want to deal with our responses to somebody who suffered a loss. And really, they're myths uh, which show themselves as responses. And I'll give you a story as an example. Writing to an advice columnist years ago, a woman expressed these concerns about family members who were in grief. My brother and his wife lost a teenage son in an auto accident six months ago. Of course, it's a terrible loss, but I worry that they're not working hard enough to get on with their lives. This was God's will. There's nothing to do about it. The family has been patient and supportive, but now we're beginning to wonder how long this will last and whether we may not have done the right thing with them. So, I mean, when I read this, I was in shock, actually. Because here, you know, the sister was saying it was God's will that death happened. It was God's will will that sent the auto to kill the kid. I don't believe that. That's not the God that I believe in. A faulty understanding about bereavement shapes this woman's concern. Like many others, she doesn't have accurate information about the grieving process. She just doesn't know. The woman incorrectly assumes that grief is of a short duration and ends within a specific time frame. Whenever there is loss and death, the loss, death of a spouse, a parent, a child, a sibling, a grandparent, grievers struggle with a variety of confusing and conflicting emotions. Too often, well-meaning individuals who say and do the wrong things 
because they are uninformed about the bereavement process, complicate that struggle. So I have 10 common myths that show themselves as comments. Hopefully we'll be able to get through them all. If not, we'll finish up next week. Because I believe that if you know about how these statements really reflect myths in the mouths and the minds of the people who say them to you, you won't be so angry at what they say. If you want to write me, um, email me and tell me the worst thing that somebody said to you when a loved one died, or if you'd like to write me and tell me the most comforting thing that someone said to you when someone died, I would be honored to receive those. And perhaps we'll spend a little time and I'll read some of those on the air. So myth number one, it has been a year since your spouse died. Don't you think you should be dating by now? Reality. It's impossible to simply replace a loved one. Susan Arlen, a New Jersey physician, offers this insight. Human beings are not goldfish. We do not flush them down the toilet and go out and look for replacements. Each relationship is unique, and it takes a long time to build a relationship of love. It also takes a long time to say goodbye. And until goodbye has been said, it is impossible to move on to a new relationship that will be complete and satisfying. And you know and I know, because this applies to some of you who are listening to me, sometimes we'll think that we should go and get married right away. Our husband or wife died and we, gotta, we can't be alone. It's too fearful to be alone. So what do we do? We find somebody else real quickly. Well, I don't know whether you know this, but the divorce statistics for second marriages are even higher than the divorce statistics for first marriages. And the divorce statistics for first marriages are more than 50% of first marriages end up in divorce. Well, it's, it's, it's closer to 60% with second marriages. Takes time. Myth number two, you look so well. Oh my God, you look so well. Reality. The, the, the bereaved do look like the non-bereaved on the outside. But on the inside, they experience a wide range of chaotic emotions. Shock, numbness, anger, disbelief, betrayal, rage, regret, remorse, guilt. These feelings are intense and confusing. One example comes from British author C.S. Lewis, who wrote these words shortly after his own wife died. In grief, nothing stays put. One keeps emerging from a phase, but it always recurs. Round and round, everything repeats. Am I going in circles? Or dare I hope I'm on a spiral? But if a spiral, am I going up or down it? 
I'm sure we've all felt just like C.S. Lewis did. Grievers feel misunderstood and isolated when people comment in astonishment, oh, you look so well. Helpful responses should simply and quietly acknowledge their pain and their suffering through statements such as, this must be very difficult for you, or I am so sorry, or how can I help, or what can I do? Myth number three, the best thing we can do for the griever is to avoid discussing the loss. Reality, the bereaved need and want to talk about their loss, including the minutest details connected to it. Grief shared is grief diminished. Each time a griever talks about the loss, a loss of, lay of pain, a layer of pain is shed. When Lois Duncan's 18-year-old daughter, Caitlin, died because of what police called a random shooting, she and her husband were devastated. Yet the people most helpful to the Duncans were those who allowed them to talk about Caitlin. The people we found most comforting made no attempt to distract us from our grief, she recalls. Instead, they encouraged Don and me to describe each excruciating detail of our nightmare over and over. That repetition diffused the intensity of our agony, made it possible for us to start healing. Myth number four, it has been six or nine or 12 months now. Don't you think you should be over it? There's not one person listening to me that has not heard that. Don't you think you should be over it already? Please, don't you want to punch them? I did when they told me that after my parents died. I wanted to punch them. What do they know? They don't know how I feel. Reality. There's no quick fix for the pain of bereavement. Of course, grievers wish they could be over it in six months. Grief is a deep wound and takes a long time to heal. And that time frame differs from person to person according to their unique circumstances. Glenn Davidson, PhD, professor of psychiatry and thanatology at Southern Illinois University School of Medicine, tracked 1,200 mourners. His research shows an average recovery time from 18 to 24 months. This past summer, I had um, open heart surgery. I went to Johns Hopkins in Baltimore and they replaced my aortic valve. I could have died. I expected, okay, I'm done. I got out of the hospital. I thought I was healed. I went to some cardiac rehab sessions. I felt great. And then I went to a conference in New York City and all the, the stuff, the air, all those things got in my system and I fell apart and I needed some more rehab. And it'll take me a year. It's going to take me a year. And I know that now. I take a lot of medicine and all that. And I know that I'll be better, but it doesn't happen right away. Myth number five, you need to be more active and get out more. Reality. Encouraging the bereaved to maintain their social, civic, and religious ties is healthy. 
Grievers should not completely withdraw and isolate themselves from others. I'm not saying that. However, it is not helpful to pressure the bereaved into excessive activity. How many people wanted you to join them at a singles group after your husband or boyfriend or girlfriend had died or left you? Because they thought you'd be better with somebody else. Erroneously, some caregivers try to help the grieving escape from their grief through trips or excessive activity. What you want to say is, leave me alone. I don't need your help. I'm doing fine on my own. I can do this. Myth number six. Funerals are too expensive and the services are too depressing. Well, guess what? I believe in funerals. They're a way of of creating a living portrait of the one who died. And yeah, they're expensive and there are different ways now. And I hope to have some guests who talk about different ways of saying goodbye, different ways of having funerals and goodbye ceremonies. But I believe you need a funeral. You can't just dump them somewhere. You got to have a funeral. Funeral is not for the one who died. Funeral is for the living. It's so we can honor their memory. Myth number seven was the will of God. As I told you last week, I kill when somebody says that. It is the most horrible thing that you could possibly say. First of all, you don't know what God's will is. Nobody does. I'm a rabbi. I have no idea what God's will is. So don't go be saying, excuse me, that this death was the will of God. That's not possible. Myth number eight, you can, you're young. You can get married again. Or your loved one is no longer in pain now. Be thankful for that. Sorry. Yes, I'm young. And yes, I can get married again. I know that in my head. But my head's not broken. It's my heart. And that's the way it is. Um, Myth number nine. She cries a lot. I'm concerned she's going to have a nervous breakdown. Oh, stop it. Leave the grievers alone. She's not going to have a nervous breakdown. If she didn't cry, she might have a nervous breakdown. Tears help. And as I said before, you could cry at the supermarket. It doesn't really matter. And finally, myth 10. Grief support groups are too depressing and not helpful. Well, the reality is that could be true. I've had people who came to me and said, You know, I went to a grief support group. It was awful. All they did was moan and groan and, oh, my God, and, oh, vey and this and that. And it was like a competition. It was a pain Olympics. Who had suffered the most? My grief groups aren't like that. I have 10 sessions. If you're interested, email me. See if we can put together a group online. And um, we have a mission We have a goal. The goal is to heal. So we're almost at the end of our session. So there are a couple things I want to say to you. Next week, hopefully, you're going to see my books on the site, uh, on banners, and you'll be able to order my books. One is called And God Created Hope, as I said. 
One is called GPS for Grief and Healing. And if you're interested, all you got to do really is go to griefok.com and you'll find me and you'll find the books. You can go right to Amazon and you can enjoy yourself. Second thing is you can invite your friends who need to hear what I have to say. Invite them to listen to past episodes. Invite them to listen to me next week and weeks after. It's been a pleasure being with you. I wish you all the healing that you deserve. I'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you again for joining Rabbi Mel Glazer for From Morning to Morning. Please tune in again next Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time and 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We're wishing you strength and hope in the next week.